So we find ourselves here in Revelation chapter 2, the last part of chapter 2. We're going through the seven churches here, of course, and we have hit the middle one. We're halfway through the seven churches. And so just as a way of review, of course, we started with these uh, seven churches. And, and the first one is, is what city? Ephesus. And so there's our lovely map of and again, these are on what's called a circular road, and you can see that it starts with Ephesus, then goes up to Spurinum, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, then back to Laodicea, and that would be that's a circular trade route, is what they called. And so that's the route that they would take. Um, Ephesus was right on the port. And so does anybody remember what the what the Jesus says uh, there that he has? I guess the criticism that he has with the church in Ephesus. They forsake, they forgot their first love, and basically what happens was they were doing all the right things in the sense they were testing everything, they were making sure that they what was being taught was, was according to God's Word, but they forgot the reason why they were doing that. They were just kind of going through the motions, and that's and the reason why they were supposed to do those things is for their love for God. And that's the same reason why we should be testing everything is because we desire to grow in our relationship with God, our love for God. We want to make sure that we are hearing the truth of what God is, what God says. And so what he tells them to do is to repent and do what you first did. Remember when you were when you first came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, first accepted or heard the gospel, the joy that you had. And he says, start doing those things over again and restore that love of, for God. The second city was Smyrna. Does anybody remember what uh, Smyrna was all about? They were going to be persecuted more. They were already being persecuted. And the historical background here is in the, uh, of course, John is on the island of Patmos. He is there in exile because the Roman emperor, uh, Domitian, wanted to get rid of him. And they sent him into exile. They tried to kill him. They just can't, they couldn't kill him. Uh, and so they sent him into exile and said, at least you're on this island. You can't do any, you can't share the gospel of Jesus and so forth. So all the believers empire-wide were dealing with this second wave of persecution. And Jesus comes to the city of Smyrna and says, listen, you're going to face even more persecution. But it's going to be for 10 days. And we take that not as a literal 10 days, but as a figurative 10 days. Because the book of Revelation most of the numbers are literal. Not most of the numbers are figurative, uh, not literal, and that plays into when we get to uh, what happens to the 144,000, which we like to talk about here as well. But you get to this these for a short time, and what was the thing that Jesus tells the believers there in Smyrna? He wants them to be what faithful, faithful to keep hanging on to the gospel of Jesus. So keep hanging on to the gospel of Jesus. Don't give up. In spite of this persecution, continue to follow after me. And then last week we looked at the city of Pergamon, which was the third city, which was the northern city. And does anybody know uh, what Jesus tells the believers in Pergamon? Uh, he says, who lives in their city? Mm-hmm. Satan. Why does he say Satan lives in that city? Because they, were, they had tons of false temples the zeus emperor worship and so jesus tells them you know i understand uh that you live in this pagan city 
And and what is the what was the the criticism that Jesus has with the believers there in Pergamum? They were being they were compromising the gospel of Jesus by allowing their culture to influence them instead of living in such a way that and this is what Jesus tells we as believers are supposed to be the salt of the earth. We're supposed to be the ones influencing our communities. We're supposed to be the ones that are influencing our, our neighbors, not the other way around. And that's what was happening. They were compromising because they wanted to, they were being influenced by by these, these pagan uh, things. And that's where he got into the Balaam, the teachings of Balaam, and and how, and who was Balaam in the Old Testament? What does he do? Besides his, his talking donkey, Mr. Ed, uh, that we were... Yes, he blessed them, and the king of Bal- the king Balak, uh, he wanted them to be cursed, uh, and because in that culture you would uh, throw out curses to your enemies, and that would kind of cheer you up, and then you would go in the battle and and defeat them, uh, and God through his donkey told him basically, listen, you don't say a word against my people. But what happens later on is he tells King Balak to, listen, if you want to get the, the blessing of God off of the nation of Israel, you got to get them to sin. And so take these women, let them intermarry with them, let them worship idols, and they will be led astray. And that's why you, Balaam is seen as this, what was happening here in Pergamon. They were being influenced by these pagan uh, temples and, and rituals. And so what was the thing that Jesus tells them to do? Repent. Stop doing that. And again, repentance just means that you you understand you're heading in the wrong direction, that you're going to change, and then you're going to head in the right direction following after God. That's what repentance means. That's what we're supposed to do when we come to know Jesus. We're supposed to understand the Gospel of Jesus. We're supposed to change are uh, the direction of our lives repent and now we're following after Jesus and so so that was kind of a quick review of where we've been and uh, we of course now we're halfway through these uh, churches here and the next one is to the church in what what city Thyatira or however you want to pronounce that one um but we've been using this basic outline, and each of these seven churches' letters, messages, all kind of have kind of a basic structure. Now, they may be a little bit different, and we'll see that here tonight uh, with some things. Uh, but generally speaking, there's these seven structures of, of things in each uh, one. And so uh, we start off with the greeting, which is that first part that says, To the angel. Uh, it could also say messenger, depending on, uh, again, how you take that that word, uh, the, to the angel of the church in Thyatira right. Now Thyatira, I'll give you some history here, is probably the least well-known of the seven cities that we have here in, in um, Revelation. We know a lot about Ephesus. We know a lot about Smyrna. We know a lot about Pergma. We know a lot about Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. But Thyatira, yeah, we don't know a lot. Uh, all we, we do know is that it's kind of 
there. That's the location of it. If you go nowadays to modern day Turkey, you can see some ruins uh, like this. And then they have a fairly large <clears throat> amphitheater that they would, uh, that was kind of like the theater of the day, and they would do uh, Greek plays and uh, gatherings during that time. But does anybody know the famous person? So we don't know too much about the city, but does anybody know the famous person in the New Testament that is from Thyatira? Lydia. If someone could look up Acts chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. This is when Paul goes not to Thyatira. Yeah, verses 13 through, sorry, verse 13, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 16. I'll get it one of these times. So if you go to the area where Paul was at, uh, you can go to this river, and they say, uh, Orthodox Church will say, that's what that kind of monument is over there at the cross, that, that Lydia was baptized in this river. Now, do we really know that? Who knows? Um, but uh, it's pretty cool when you think about that, that you can say that, hey, I was baptized. We People go to the Jordan River all the time. It's like, hey, I was baptized in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. Different, totally different water. 2,000-year-old water is not there. Um, it's somewhere else in the, uh, wherever the Jordan River flows to. Same thing here. But this is a cool idea is that we know where this scene takes place and Lydia was baptized. Lydia was a merchant or a, a, a um, she did, uh, sold what type of cloth? Purple. What, what's significant about purple cloth? Why would Luke tell us that Lydia was a merchant of purple cloth? Royalty. Thyatira here. There are a lot of, this is an industrial town. And some of the first, if you want to, uh, it's interesting when you think about this is that Nowadays, we have these trade unions in America and how depending on, you have the carpenters union and depending on where, where sometimes if you're labor unions and so forth. In Thyatira, they, they, they had this kind of similar setup where depending on your, your industry that you had, you were part of this, this kind of this union uh, and so forth. And one of them was as Lydia here with the merchant of purple cloth uh, some of them were this, uh, we'll see here in a few moments, with this bronze or this fine metal that they would, around the Thyatira area, they would uh, uh, they would make into, especially for military purposes, uh, they would use. Uh, and so there was a lot of industry here, and really that's all that we really know. Uh, there's a few religious things that happen, and the other interesting thing about this is, so nowadays... If you're part of a, a carpenter's, uh, my dad was part of a carpenter's union uh, years ago, and, and there was some, some of these like rituals, and of course you have to pay your dues and things like that to be a part of that. In Thyatira, when you're a part of these, these what we would call these, car, these unions, uh, not only were you paying your dues, but you also had, each union had their individual god that they would worship. And that is kind of where we get into this message that, that Jesus gives the church there in Thyatira. It's some of the abuse that is happening there with good old Jezebel. There you go. You're ready for that. 
Pergamon dealt with uh, with Balaam. Uh, Thyatira dealt deals with uh, Jezebel. So, so we go back to the that that setting, the basic outline. So the greeting is to the angels, the message, the church in Thyatira, right? And then we have these titles from the vision of of Jesus in chapter one. If you remember, there's each one of these letters refers back to this vision of Jesus in chapter one that we we saw. And so when you look at the next several verses, what are some of the images that you recognize from that vision of Jesus in chapter 1? Before we begin, let me read us uh, these verses and then we will uh, dive in here. Verse Starting verse 18, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like varnished um, bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. But I have this against you. You you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, and she teaches to deceive my servants into sexual immorality and to eat the food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, immorality but she is unwilling so i will cast her on a bed of suffering and i will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways i will strike her children dead then all the churches will know that i am he who searches hearts and minds and i will repay each of you according to your deeds now i say to the rest of you in thyatire to you do not you to you who do not hold to her teaching and not learn Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. And to the one who is victorious, or the one who overcomes, or the one who, who prevails, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star." Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So now, going back, we saw the greeting. Now, what are this vision of chapter 1? What are some things we see here going back to chapter 1? Eyes like flame, what else? Feet like bronze. And then there's one title that isn't so much from chapter 1, the Son of God. You got them all three. The first one is and this is the first time we see this one referring to Jesus of course Jesus is the one giving this message to these uh, angels or to these churches and he says you know the, the these are the words of the son of God the NIV or the son of God says is how it literally is and so this is the only time we will see in the book of revelation the title son of God and the reason why is, and some people will point to this, is because some of, one of the, the temples there in Thyatira is a guy by the name of, let me make sure I tell you this right, Apollos, I believe. Yes. Not Apollos, Apollo. Does anybody know the Greek mythology or Greek gods? Apollo is the son of whom? Zeus. And Zeus was like the god uh, that the Greeks worshipped. And so here you have Jesus saying, you know, you think Apollo is the Son of God? No. I'm Jesus, 
the son of God, the creator God. Uh, says this, and then of course we have the two ones that we saw. Eyes like flames of fire. And, and when you think of it again, when you look at those that vision from chapter 1, it isn't so much of, of having a description of what Jesus looks like, but it's more of the symbolicness of or symbolism that comes from this. And does anybody remember what the eyes of blazing fire symbolized? Fire in the scriptures a lot of times is symbolized of Sodom and Gomorrah, God judgment. brought judgment. And between those two things, purification and judgment, that's what typically it was. You think of, uh, uh, there's, uh, you think of when the, the village of um, Samaritans didn't welcome Jesus and the disciples, then you had the, the sons of thunder. Do you want to call us, allow us to call us uh, fire down from heaven and destroy them? And Jesus is like, no, no, not, not, no. And that's the understanding of judgment. And so, as you see Jesus' eyes uh, blazing fire, he is bringing judgment upon the, the church there at Thyatira. The other one is his feet that are bronze, uh, like bronze or, or burnished bronze. And this is that the metal that they mine there at Thyatira for military purposes. And understanding, again, symbolic is you, you make, make this metal for the military. Well, Jesus is that ultimate warrior that is going to come and bring judgment upon you. And that's this is one of those letters that you read through it. It is all about judgment. God's discipline is going to come upon this church. And then we have the I know section, the next one. And what are some things that Jesus says? I know. I know this about you. So you have all these things. Uh, Jesus says, I know. Your deeds, I know your love, and that kind of that that's that agape love, and probably is referring to I know that I know your your love for God, and I know you love each other. Because it goes on and says, not only do you your love, but also your faith that you are trusting in God. That's what faith means. Your your service, uh, the understanding that you are humbling yourself, that you are that you are um, being that servant towards each other. That perseverance of being able to hang on in, in hard times. And then that final one, as um, Brenda, what did you say the final one? That you are doing now more than what you did before. And the understanding of that is, is a little bit different. That they are doing more good deeds now. And they're having more of an impact than they did when they first believed. Which is great. You think about that. I mean, they think, okay, yes, up to this point in time, hey, that's fantastic, you know? Why does this church need God's judgment? Uh, because God's saying, hey, you're doing a great job. But, what's the criticism? Jezebel. Verse 20, I have this against you. You toler tolerate the woman Jezebel. There's a lot of debate about this. Just like, and you'll hear me say that a lot when you go through the book of Revelation. Because there's a lot of debate about every single detail in the book of Revelation. Uh, but there's a lot of debate about this understanding of Jezebel. And, and most, people, there, most people would argue that, it, that when Jesus says this, there is a specific woman that is in the church of Thyatira that is doing these things. 
Her name is probably not Jezebel. That's probably not her name. But she is acting in the the the, the same way. I wouldn't say spirit, but the, the, she's acting like yeah, she's acting like the Old Testament Jezebel, and that's what we're going to spend some time and look at. Um, and so Jesus says, you know, you tolerate her. It's interesting as you you go on and says you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a what? A prophet. So in other words, you are allowing her to come into your midst in the church as this group of believers and you are allowing her to influence you. Again, there is probably a real woman. Her name isn't Jezebel, but there is a real, real woman who claimed to be a prophet, and and probably and that was a big thing in the early church, uh, first century. This understanding of of hey, the apostles didn't share all the details. You know, I had the special revelation. That's where where John, first John, deals with. You know, and even Paul deals with. If you hear anybody teach anything else besides the gospel that you've received from us. As Paul says there in Galatians, let them be accursed. Even if an angel comes down to you and preaches a different gospel, let the angel be accursed. And so that's what was happening here. And so Jezebel, who was Jezebel in the Old Testament? A king's wife. Does anybody know who's king's wife? Ahab. Ahab, good king or bad king? Horrible king. Who was the prophet that challenged Ahab? Elijah. And that's usually what we think about is that the Mount Carmel incident where Elijah goes and pretty much tells King Ahab and the nation of Israel, choose for yourself. Are you going to worship Baal or Baal? Or are you going to worship Yahweh, the one true God? And whoever brings fire down from heaven is the one true God. And of course, Elijah has fun with uh, the prophets of uh, Baal and says, oh, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he has taken a nap. Maybe he's outside uh, relieving himself type deal. Um, and, and, but then all of a sudden, God just sends fire. And, but Jezebel is the one that brings that type of worship into the nation of Israel. In fact, we'll read, we won't read all these passages um, but we'll start there in First Kings uh, chapter 16. So stick your finger or a pen there in Revelation because we'll be back. But uh, turn to First Kings chapter 16 there. And whoever gets that first, First Kings chapter 16, verses 31 through 33. Yeah, Ahab was not a good guy. Now, at this point in time, this is referring to the uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, that's where you get Samaria. Uh, that was the capital of this northern kingdom. The southern kingdom capital was Jerusalem. Ahab, there was never, if you look at all the northern kingdom kings, they were all wicked, all of them. Judah, the kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem, there was some of them were good, some of them bad, and so forth. But here we have the description of King Ahab that he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. And the reason why that happened was because he married Jezebel, who brought in 
Baal worship. And you can pronounce that either Baal or Baal, depending on how you want to enunciate that. Um, chapter 21, flip over to chapter 21 there. Uh, verses 25 and 26, we get this other scene there. And so you have, again, Ahab, wicked king, but who's urging him in his wickedness? Jezebel. And you can see, you can turn to Second Kings if you want. We won't read that. But that is uh, basically saying how uh, Ahab has passed off. Their son uh, becomes king and, and says, you know, all the idols in the nation of Israel are because of your mom, Jezebel. Um, and so, I mean, this, this lady was not a good lady. And she led the nation of Israel. And that's one of the things that comes through this with uh, King Ahab. Yes, King Ahab was a wicked man. But Jezebel was the one leading him and pushing him uh, to that. The other interesting thing is, of course, Jezebel is not, she comes from a, a pagan uh, culture, which is why she brings in pagan worship, which is one of the things that the, the Old Testament law specifically told the kings not to do. King Solomon, same way, his pagan wives led him away from the Lord. And here we have another example of uh, with Jezebel. And so back in Revelation here, you have this woman who is doing the same thing. Just as Jezebel led the entire nation away from God, you now have this woman who claims to be a prophet within this church, and she is doing what? By her teaching, she is committing fornication. She is deceiving the God's servants. And when she deceives, this is what that word means, is to seduce a person into sin by leading them into error. So it's not so much that, so because of, it's, it's not just because of her actions that people are following. She's purposely teaching this error, which is causing people to then live in sin. And this is being done on purpose, which is why she deceives, of course, in sexual immorality, which is probably uh, prostitution, uh, because we're in, in this understanding, eating meat, sacrifice idols, same thing that Paul deals with. We, we, won't, we don't have time. You can look that up later. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, same argument where Paul says, no, don't do this. And part of this is understanding that, that if you are going to go, and again, this, these, these what, what we call labor unions, and each of them have their gods, and they would have their festivals to their gods, the part of this festival was they would go to these temples and they were sacrificed to speak and they would have these dinners and, and they would always have sexual morality or prostitution involved in, with all this. Uh, this is why they called it temple prostitutes and so forth. And you had this scene. And that's what was happening. I mean, you're, these are supposed to be believers in Jesus Christ. But they're participating in this and this woman is encouraging them and is teaching them, hey, it's okay to do that type of stuff. And so what is Jesus going to do after he says there in verse 20, I have this against you, you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and she teaches, she deceives or misleads my servants into sexual immorality and to eat food, sacrifice idols. Verse 21, what is Jesus going to do to her? I have given her time to repent. 
But is she willing to repent? No. So see, Jesus goes on and says, verse 22, what's going to happen to her? She's going to, I will cast her onto, and the NIV says, I will cast her onto a bed of suffering, or a little more literally, it's a, it's a kind of idiom. I will strike her, uh, I will cast her onto her bed. And it, it's an idiom meaning, I will strike her with a sickness. Meaning I'm going to cause her to get sick to the point that she can't get out of bed. And God's, that's God's judgment coming upon her. Not only that, but what's going to happen to the people that follow her, her teaching? Before he says, uh, before that, uh, they'll strike her, her children dead. Uh, but the end of verse 22, I'll make those who commit adultery worth her do what? Great tribulation, suffer intently. And in fact, we talk a lot about you know, the past, the, the last seven years of, of before Jesus returns. We call that the great tribulation. Well, the Bible uses that phrase all the time. And here's one of those. And this is not referring to the last seven years. God's going to cause much affliction in their life, great suffering, great tribulation in their life. Why would God do that? To get their, to get their attention. To discipline them. To help them see, you know, that that what they're doing is wrong, the sin that they're living in is wrong. There's another passage of Scripture where, where God says, God does the same thing to another church, and Paul, in his, in his explanation of the Lord's Supper, will actually say, you know, because you take the Lord's Supper uh, you know, flippantly almost, and, and not, you're not uh, in a right manner, there's some of you that are sick, and there's some of you, some of the ones that have even fallen asleep, and that means what in Scripture? Falling asleep? Yeah. They're dead. You ever think about that? We were thinking, well, that's that's communion. Yeah, and in the Church of Corinth, some people died because they didn't take communion in a worthy manner. And again, it goes back to that question: you know, why does God do this? You think of Ananias and Sapphira. Why does God all of a sudden wipe them out? Because what do they do? They lie. Someone said one time, a pastor said one time, that if God still did that to us, we would have funeral homes uh, connected to churches uh, in their basement. But what would be the, what's going to be the result? This judgment's going to come. The, the children of this Jezebel, or another, this lady who, people that followed this, God's going to come and God's going to bring judgment. What will happen, what will be the result with all the churches when this judgment comes? Yep. Verse 23, end of verse 23, Then all the churches will know that I am He, which is Jesus again, that I am He who searches hearts and minds. In other words, I know, I know everything. And I will repay each of you according to your what? Do your deeds or works. You're going to receive judgment as well. You can't hide anything from God. Right. That kid's song that we used to sing, oh, be careful little eyes what you see, oh, be careful little eyes for the Father up above is looking down in love, oh, be careful little eyes what you see in the hands and feet and so forth. Even when we think, oh, no one's looking, ultimately who's looking? And God's looking. I think that's part of it, and I think it's also, is, as we'll see here in a few minutes, part of the 
the pressure to be like, listen, if you want to survive, if you want to have a thriving business in Thyatira, then you better go along with this, or you may not have business. And that may be one reason why, like Lydia, is not in Thyatira. She runs in the fall. Because she might have left because she was like, I just don't want to deal with all that. Now, this is years later. Um, but at the same time, you have you have that where because of that influence of um, if you want to if you want to succeed in the business world in Thyatira, if you want to succeed uh, in your family, then you have to you have to go to these festivals and you have to participate regardless of, of if you agree with it or not. So yeah. Verse 24. Now you usually do like uh, after we do the criticism, we do the next one with number five, which is a warning. But this isn't really so much of a, a warning uh, as opposed to now this is what I want you to do uh, in regards to you all who aren't following Jezebel, the teaching of Jezebel, which is what? And I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, who do who have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. And again, one of the things in the early church, people were like, hey, you got to have the secret, the secret knowledge or the secret revelation. And so the Thyatira was teaching the same thing about these pagan gods, which is why... Again, Jesus uh, will call them that Satan because if you worship idols, even Paul says this, if you worship idols, you're actually worshiping Satan. Like if you're bowing down to a Buddha, you're worshiping Satan because there's only one God and Buddha's not it. And so you have that, that's why Jesus, but then he goes, I will not impose any burden on you except for this, to hold on to what you have until I come. And really, again, what Jesus is saying there is, is exactly that. You know, don't give in to the pressure of your family. Don't give in to the pressure of your job to just go along with the flow. Hang on to the gospel of Jesus Christ and don't give in. And then we get to an interesting thing. Verses 6 and 7 are actually flipped. We get down to where a promise happens first and then an exhortation. And so where's the promise? What verses? Verse, we usually have verse 29, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord says. And then we have the promise, but this is flip-flops. And so the promise that we have is in verse 26. The one who is victorious, or the one who, the overcomer. And then Jesus defines, you know, a lot of times we like that understanding, hey, we're, we're these uh, overcomers, but what is an overcomer? Jesus defines it. And who does my will or obeys my deeds to the end, that person is the overcomer. So when you look at all these other verses, churches, and it says to the overcomers, the person who prevails to the end, the person who makes it to the end, and that's really the message of the whole entire book of Revelation. The believer that makes it to the end. And that person that does not give into this this wicked culture who who eats these and participates with this paganism, the one who fought, continues to hang on to the gospel of Jesus, who gets to the end, I will give authority over the nations, that one will rule with them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. 
Does anybody have a footnote after verse 27? It's a quote. Psalm chapter 2. Does anybody know what Psalm chapter 2 is referring to? No, let's uh, flip to Psalm 2. Yep. Psalm 2 There's is what we call a Messianic psalm. And the reason why we call it a Messianic psalm is because the Jewish, it's not that we make it up. It's like, oh, this is, the Jewish people thought that this psalm was pointing to that future Messianic king. And that's why we call it a Messianic psalm. Which ultimately, we know that Messianic king or the Messiah is Jesus because he is Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. And so when you look at Psalm 2 and you get down to verse 7, it says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, your rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his role with trembling. And so it's the understanding that this king's going to come and God's going to make the nations his what? You're going to give the nations, all the nations to him as an inheritance. And then in Jewish Hebrew poetry tradition, whatever you say in the first part of the verse, you kind of repeat it. Uh, following it to a little bit different. And that's why it says, ask me, I'll make the nations your your inheritance. And he rephrases it a little bit. The ends of the earth, referring to the nations, your possession or your inheritance. Verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron. Now, in when you think of paintings of e- Pharaoh in, in Egypt and from, from like uh, antiquity, you have Pharaoh with this kind of goofy hat. And he's holding out his right arm. And what usually does he have in his hand? A scepter. And that's the image here of this king. This messianic king. That he is going to have power. He is going to have dominion over the entire world. And he will dash them to pieces like pottery. When you take a... um, In the ancient time, you would take pottery when you were about ready to go to war. You would write down your the your enemy, and then to kind of again to get the troops all fired up, you would take that pottery and then you would just throw it over your head and you would smash it down to the ground as that sign and we're about ready to go into battle and we're going to destroy these guys. That was that symbolicness. Nowadays, uh, you think of like uh, Braveheart. Braveheart, the Patriot uh, type deal where. You have Mel Gibson running around on the horse and or or waving the flag or whatever to get the get your the going. Uh, that was what in the first century. That's what they did. And so you have this messianic king who's going to come and rule over the nations, and he is going to be be victorious over them, and he will rule over them with that iron. Staff. And so when you go back to Revelation, so that is referring, so Psalm 2 is referring to that Messianic King. You go back to Revelation now, this promise, where Jesus Himself says, I will give to the ones who are victorious, who overcome, the ones who make it to the end, who follow Me, I will give authority over the nations. That one, in other words, the overcomer, will rule them with an iron scepter. And so Psalm 2 is referring to this king. Revelation is referring to whom? Believers. Those who overcome. Which is interesting when you think about this. And so how do we take this? Is Jesus promises His followers 
that they're going to be participators in his everlasting physical kingdom. And you see that throughout the New Testament. Paul says, don't you realize, believers, you're going to be you're you're going to be judges over angels. Well, no, Paul. Nowhere in the other new nowhere in the New Testament tells us we're going to judge angels. But some, there's that one verse in there. We're going to we're going to actually somehow be involved in this rule in this reign of that new heavens and the new earth, and that is that physical kingdom. And that's what the Book of Revelation is all about. Morning star. The morning star is a title of Jesus. Uh, if you turn to the back of Revelation there, um, it is Revelation 22.16. It is, again, that referring to that morning star, which is a messianic. Let me read that at the very end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning the bright morning star and it again is referring to that messianic of uh title of of Jesus and the morning star is the very first star sometimes sometimes it's referred to as the brightest star that happens that comes out some people will actually call it like venus uh, if you ever look up in the night sky sometimes the first star that pops out never knew this until we went to first glitch one time and did uh um stargazing with the um park ranger was a park ranger educational person one of those people uh no we were this was before we moved state park and also we were looking up in the night sky and the guy said hey guess what that little star over there is venus and i thought that's incredible we can see venus so i never knew that we could see uh other planets um but that's uh usually it's that that bright star that that first star um is that morning star and and again it's that when Jesus refers to himself is that messianic title referring to the fact that he is king overall. He is the first one, the firstborn. Uh, he is the supreme. And so, but he applies it here, verse 28. I will also give that one, referring to the overcomer, referring to the one who makes it to the end, the one, the morning star. And again, it's the same understanding that the promise that they follow me to the end, they will be those participators in my physical kingdom, my everlasting kingdom, which happens in when Jesus comes again in Revelation chapter 21, 2021, where he comes and he makes the new heavens and the new earth. And as a physical, a physical new heavens and a new earth, where there's no more curse, no more diseases, no more pain, no more suffering, and God Himself will dwell with His children. Which is interesting when you think about this, something to think about. When a believer dies, the moment they take their final breath here on this planet, what happens to them? They're ushered into the presence of God in heaven. As Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. If we're already in the presence of God, then why do we need to be resurrected? It's because Revelation chapter 20 and 21, a new physical heaven and earth, and we have to be resurrected to our 
new everlasting bodies that won't decay, which is why when Jesus returns in a twinkling of an eye, those who are still alive will be do what? Will be changed. And all of a sudden, this physical body that decays will become a, into a body that it does not decay. And why does that all happen? Because this physical kingdom that happens in the new heavens and the new earth. But here is the final thing through all that. Uh, I guess uh, the, the thing that there is the church in Pergamon we're dealing with is a question. We, are we compromising the gospel of Jesus for our own gain? And that's what was going on. In order for us to do business, in order for us to succeed here in this town, we got to participate in these pagan rituals. We have to go to these temples. We have to participate in these festivals. In order for us to be accepted by our friends and family in our town, we need to compromise and participate in these sinful behaviors. And of course, Jesus says, no, stand for the truth. Do not compromise. Hang on to the gospel of Jesus.